So in Hebrews 5, I'll begin reading with verse 1, and I will read through verse number 6. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he says, also in another place, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So let's have a word of prayer. Okay, Father, we love you. We thank you. We are grateful for another opportunity to fellowship with your saints and to teach your word. Give us all ears to hear. Help me to speak clearly and plainly. We need the help of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Slowly, we're making our way through this book, and we're seeing the numerous ways that Jesus is better than all of the people to whom he is compared. At the end of chapter 4, we worked on two things in particular. Number one, the fact that he's the Son of God, and secondly, the fact that he's now in the heavens, and he's reachable, which is very important for us when it comes to our approach to the Lord. Approach means everything. If you don't believe God is going to answer your prayer or is even listening to you, you won't even want to talk to him. If you've ever been ignored by someone, then you know after you've been ignored enough times, you don't even want to approach them about anything. Or if you feel like you've been blown off. When it comes to God, he works with us in such a way that because of the death of Jesus and because of the access we've now been given, we are to boldly come to the throne of God and expect to find help in our times of need. Now then we move from heaven back to earth and he's going to deal with Jesus as a high priest and he wants us to pay attention to this language of Jesus as a high priest because no one else in the New Testament uses this kind of language to describe Jesus. And in verse five again, he says a high priest is selected or chosen even appointed for people. That means that it's, it's the role of the high priest to deal with sacrifices. The priest in the Old Testament, he offered gifts and sacrifices, sacrifices for sins. It was God's plan that all sin would be handled on the basis of the shedding of blood. That's not something I created. You didn't come up with that. This is in the Bible. It's not going to change at all. This was always God's plan. And whenever people look into the Old Testament, sometimes they get offended at the number of animals that died, the number of animals that were sacrificed, the number of judgments that came to people, the natural disasters that sometime came to different individuals. But I, 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 want, I want you to think about 
the fact that God has a plan for everything that he does. There's a purpose behind everything. I've told you before that the reason the shedding of blood was important is because the, the blood of the animals was the closest thing that God could get to that was pure. He couldn't use human blood. So we're in Hebrews 5 verse 1. My blood couldn't be used. Yours couldn't be used because we're tainted or stained with original sin. So we can never be sacrifices for someone else. But verse one is plain in that the priest's ministry was one of blood and one of sacrifices and a, a, a bloody occupation. It certainly was. But this is what they had to do. And they were specially chosen by God to do what they did. Verse 2 even tells us that the priest has compassion on those that are ignorant or those who uh, don't know right from wrong and some who do know right from wrong, but yet go out of the way or go astray. The reason we need a priest like that is because we need someone that can identify with us. People do go astray. Sheep do get lost sometimes. And in the story of the parable of the lost sheep, you know how the Lord has to send somebody out there to go get that one and leave the 99. We know the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son grew up in a fairly good home, but he came of age and felt like he wanted his father's inheritance before daddy died. Daddy shared it with him. He took the inheritance, went right out there into a, a, another city or another country far from home, as the scripture says, in the far country, far from truth. Far from how he was raised, far from the customs that he knew about. And the scripture uses the language, he wasted his substance in riotous living. I mean, that's, that's an inter interesting way to put that, you know. It's one thing to say somebody spent everything. It's another thing to say somebody wasted it. And then to describe their lifestyle as riotous. That means it was chaotic. There was no kind of rule to it at all. It was lawless is what it was. His brother... Because our siblings have a way of knowing our strengths and weaknesses. The brother even said to the father, by the time the boy came back, he said, look, he probably spent it all on women. So the brother knew what his brother was like. But it was only out there after he had gone astray that the scripture says he had wasted everything that he ended up having to take a job looking after pigs. That's, that's a, a terrible descent. From working at your father's place, having all your needs met, you being an heir to so many things, to plunging into such an awful kind of lifestyle that the best you can do now is become a hired hand to look after the pigs. Now, the whole, the, the, the whole, the, the whole thing with the story that is supposed to make it somewhat uh, of a bad thing is that this is the story about what's supposed to be a Jewish family. And... Jewish people had no dealings with pigs. So for him to have to look after pigs now, he's really come a long way because he's had to compromise all of his virtues. So he, he's at that place where you say, I would never do this. Now he's doing it. And you've probably seen people do that. I would never get so bad in my life that I'd have to do that. Be careful. Somebody move away from God, move away from truth, never know what exactly will happen. So the priest that we need is somebody that can have compassion 
on people that go out of the way and show that same kind of love for us. And even as the father waited anxiously every day by the gate looking for his boy to come up the road, when his son did come up the road, the father was there and ran and gave him a big hug and embraced him. He didn't wait for him to bathe. He just hugged him in the midst of all of the memories of his iniquity. That young man was convicted and feeling guilty. He said, Father, forgive me for what I've done. Just accept me as a hired servant. But the father's love covered all of his sins. That's what, that's what love does. So we feel bad about what we do. We know the things that we do are wrong, but it's the Heavenly Father's embrace that lets us know, okay, it's going to be all right. You feel bad now, but it is going to be okay. And that's the kind of high priest that we have. He's one that is compassionate, and he is touched by the feeling of our infirmities, and he's reachable. I wouldn't want to serve a God that, that couldn't identify with my pain. But this is what, what we have here. So those that go out of the way still are those that God cares about. So even if somebody were to backslide in your family, you're just going to give up on them? If somebody just drops out of fellowship and say, I don't want to have anything to do with God anymore. I don't want to go to church anymore. Just going to let them go? Sometimes when people go out of the way, you still have to go after them in compassion and love them and cover the iniquity. I think the year that we came here, there was in New Zealand a uh, shepherd, sheep herder, had over 17,000 sheep. One of them got lost. I never could find this, this, this sheep at all. But, but they said from the time that sheep was little, that sheep hated having its wool cut. It just, just, just run, didn't like fleece being messed with it all. And just the sound of that, that, that uh, the clippers or whatever, the shears, they, they just, just drive him crazy. He'd just take off running. So somehow he got away and they never could find him. Six years later, somebody stumbles across this sheep that had been hiding out in caves for six years. And now this sheep has 60 pounds of wool on it. So much that it can no longer even see. That, that's how much. They say they had enough wool on it to make 20 men's suits. And I've seen a bunch of pictures of this, this sheep also. But this, 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 the wool had ticks and all kinds of stuff in it. And, and, and obviously, this thing was hiding out in caves and then coming out and nibbling and staying away from wherever the flock was at and the shepherds and everything like that. And somebody just happened to stumble upon it and they brought it back. And then when they, when they finally cut all of that off of it, because they had a big public showing, I mean, this tiny little thing couldn't have been any longer than this. Body couldn't have been any more than this, but it had this much wool on it. All of that because he went astray. Okay? Because he went astray. And I'm sure he felt good after they probably put the, the clippers to him then, you see. Well, this, this certainly can happen for believers. We get cut off from the, the fellowship of the saints and we avoid God and turn from the scriptures and, and pretty soon... Things start obscuring our vision, bitterness, unforgiveness, sin, things like that. And by the time we finally do get back in fellowship, then somebody now has got to deal with all of our spiritual tics and other kinds of things. So you hope, you hope when you get back in there that maybe the pastor carries a knife you know, so he can at least begin to cut 
and, and deal with things through the teaching of the, of the word of God. Because even plants you have to prune. That's, that's the teaching of scripture. Notice verse 3. Still speaking about this priest with compassion. By reason hereof he ought as for the people so also for himself to offer for sins. The holiest priest that ever lived in the Old Testament still was a sinner. And every year on the Day of Atonement, uh, sacrifices had to be offered for him. And we can, see, we, we can see this in Leviticus 16. That's the third book of the Old Testament. Keep your finger in Hebrews number 5. But Leviticus 16, notice what it says in verse number 11. And Aaron shall bring the bullock for the, the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. If the priest did not have to offer for himself, you know the possibility of pride and arrogance could have drifted in? If, if he would have believed that his ministry was just to make atonement for everybody else's sin, but never be reminded of the fact that you're just like they are, you need a sacrifice too. That'll produce pride because of self-righteousness. And self-righteousness rarely comes creeping into our lives in a parade, blowing trumpets and everything else. It usually creeps in uh, amongst the other little things that are in our heart, and it comes in quietly. So we need to remember the fact that Jesus sacrificed himself not only for, for those people over there, but, but also for us too. We always have to remember that. Go back to Hebrews 5. So this is a priest who, who offered for sins and had a ministry helping deal with sin and helping God find pleasure in his people through the sacrifice of sin, but he never should have become haughty to think that he was better than the people he was ministering to and the people he was ministering for. So there are two aspects to an Old Testament priest's ministry, his ministry to people and then his ministry to God. The ministry to people was the acceptance of the offering, the goats, the sheep, the doves that they brought, then the killing of that, the catching of the blood, the preparation of the animal uh, to be offered on the, uh, the, uh, the altar, that, that brass altar, then the ministry to God, to go and minister that to God, to go into the Holy of Holies, to be obedient to God so that God would find favor with his activities. So we don't ever want to forget that. Scripture says, now you're a priest and I'm a priest under the New Testament. You're a priest in your home. I'm a priest in my home, male or female. In Christ, we all have ministries like that. So let's never forget that the blood of Jesus is necessary for us. Now, if you're here today and you do believe that you are perfect, I just want to talk to a few of your family members. I think maybe they can shine or shed a little bit of light on that. Now, verse 4, nobody takes this honor to himself but the one that's called of God. In the Old Testament, you could not become a priest unless you were of the lineage and family of Aaron. The tribe of Judah or somebody who was of the tribe of Dan, they couldn't just wake up one day and say, look, I'm just as holy as you or I'm going to become a priest whether you like it or not. Well, they could have tried it. They probably would have ended up judged by the Lord and something not so nice would have occurred. 
But the principle is still the same. God assigns people different roles. So Ephesians says God has given in the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So nobody should want to assume a function that God hadn't given to them. Now today, it doesn't matter whether a person believes they're called to ministry or not. You can pay enough money, go to a Bible college or a seminary, you can come out and somebody will give you a church. Or you can go through enough layman's classes in your local denomination and somebody will turn a parish over to you, whether or not you feel like you're called. Scripture here says nobody takes this honor unto himself, but one that is called of God. What is the calling of God? It's something that a person wrestles with. It's something that God deals with in their heart. It's something that's inescapable. If somebody ever told me they were called to preach, I'd say, look, if, you, if there's anything in this world that you can do other than this, then you better do it. But if you feel like you can't escape this, I mean, and it bothers you in the morning and it bothers you in the afternoon and it bothers you in the evening and it bothers you late at night. And this is all that's on your mind and your heart. You can't get any rest about it. And you're probably going to have to do what God tells you to do. Like one preacher I heard told a young man, he young man felt called to be a minister full time to go as a pastor. Had a very good job working for the telephone company, made a lot of good money, six figure income. But the church that was open to him in this particular state only had a few people. People didn't have a whole lot of money. And so this young man was getting some advice from the older preacher. And he said, look, he said, I want to step out and obey God. But he said, look, if I I do this, I've got a wife, I've got kids. This would be like taking a vow of poverty to take this church and to, to do this the way it needs to be done. And that elderly preacher said to that younger preacher, he said, well, If money is what you're looking for, you better stay there at the phone company. But if God is what you're after, then you better hurry up and do what God has told you to do. Because God will take care of you in whatever he's called you to do. Well, that's true. Aaron and his family of that tribe of Levi, unlike the other tribes, they received no real estate when they went into the promised land. The other 11 tribes with the split of Joseph's children. Ephraim and them. So 13. Those other tribes received real estate and lots of property. The only thing the tribe of Levi received was the right to minister in the tabernacle. And God said to them, that is your inheritance and don't complain about it. So everybody else was passing off their property to their grandchildren and their grandchildren. Because as the scripture says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. The only thing the tribe of Levi could leave to their people were the ministry of the word of God. Scripture here says, no man takes this honor unto himself. So it's an honorable calling. It's an honorable ministry to, to, be, a, to be a priest, to minister like this. And he gives us the name of the one that was called, and that was Aaron, Moses' brother. But even with the calling that Aaron had, Aaron was not a perfect man. You remember Aaron built the golden calf? Mm-hmm. Aaron was the one that... Uh, was was very uh, mechanical, handy with his hands. And when Moses went up into the mountain and was gone for too long, the people went to Aaron and they said, Aaron, we, we don't know what happened to Moses. He probably fell over dead. He might have left us. We're just out here. We're just, we, we need somebody we can worship. You know, we do come from Egypt. You got to have something you can see. And, and, and it'd be better for us if if you make us a God or something. So Aaron, having been raised in Egypt, Knowing how the Egyptians did it, 
And, and he knew how to put it together. Obviously, he told everybody. He said, bring me your earrings and your nose rings and your toe rings and your tongue rings and your lip rings and bring me a golden and all that stuff. And they brought all of that. And, and, and sure enough, he put it in a, a big, huge pot and got the boil in that and melted it all down. And then, as the scripture says, he pulled out an engraving tool and then began to fashion it. Now that, that means you've, you've got a, I don't know if he had a mold or a cast or whether or not he just started working on some big lump. But whatever he did, he created it. He knew what it's supposed to look like here and what was here suddenly was manifested out here. And then when he was done, he said to the Israelites, behold, your God that brought you out of Egypt. Can you imagine? Wow. I wonder how much time it took him to make it because I know it took Moses less time when he came down off that hill and broke it up and ground it in the powder, poured it in the water and made the Israelites drink the water. That's what he did. Made them drink it. So how would you like to have a God you can devour? So verse number five says Aaron was called, but even though he was called, he was imperfect. Then verse five takes us into the contrast between Aaron and Christ. Christ did not exalt himself to become high priest. He didn't he didn't just wake up one day and say, I want to be a priest. That's what it's saying. He didn't choose this. But now the quotation from Psalm two and seven. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. He was born for the purpose of dying. He was born for the purpose of reigning. He was born for the purpose of being the high priest. And this was something that was determined before there ever was an Aaron, before there ever was an Adam and Eve from the foundation of the earth. And then he quotes another place from Psalm 110. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is an interesting man. We don't know who his parents were. When he makes his appearance in Genesis chapter 14, we only have a few sentences. It says Abraham went off to war. Well, let's go there. Go to Genesis 14. I'll just let you read it for yourself. First book of the Bible. Abraham went off to war because he had a nephew who was taken captive. And his nephew obviously was not a warrior like Abraham was. And we'll start in verse 13. <clears throat> so somebody escaped and came and told Abram the Hebrew that his nephew from verse 12 had been taken captive. So verse 14, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he took 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and they went in pursuit of them as far as Dan. So verse 14 gives you the first biblical general that we have mentioned in the scripture. This was a man that trained his, his servants in warfare. He probably taught them how to use a spear or whatever they might've had during that time. But he taught them how to fight. We're talking about a man that revelry started at 7 a.m. over there for him. I said, y'all get up, just get them legs up, stretch them arms out. He got them ready. Scripture says they were trained and they went out. Verse 15, he divided his forces a hundred and six, three different directions and pursued the people. And he brought back all the goods and he brought back Lot his nephew, and the women and the people. Now, I bet you Abraham looked good to them when he showed up. Yeah, taken captive. So verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, 
Verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought bread and wine. So here's our first picture of ancient communion. Here's our first image of it. Bread and wine. He was the priest, so he's a king and a priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be the blessed be Abram of, of God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies to your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. So here is where we get communion, and here's where we get the tithe. Communion does not begin with Moses, nor does the tithe. This goes all the way back to Abraham. Of all that he recovered, he said he's given to the Lord. And, and when they tried to talk him into keeping everything for himself, he said, absolutely not. He said, there's no way I can withhold a tithe from God lest you say you made me rich. So this is why we've always told you. 10% of anything you find, inherit, earn, is given to you, you give to God. That, that, this is where this comes from. This man went to war, and even in the midst of war, this is what he did practice. So that's Melchizedek, the king priest of Genesis 14. Let's go back to Hebrews 5 now. The scripture then tells us of Jesus in verse 6, you are forever a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the tribe of Levi was the first tribe ever in the history of the world, specially called and appointed to do nothing but minister for God. And this they did for 1,500 years or so. Now, there were priests in Egypt, but they were pagan. There were uh, priests or whatever somebody might have called them in other civilizations, the Canaanites, people like that. But they were all pagan, heathen. But with the tribe of Levi and with Aaron, you have the first tribe that's going to continually look after the holy things of God. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And the scripture says that Jesus is even going back to an order that's, that's behind the tribe of Levi, and that's Melchizedek, forever after Melchizedek. Now, we'll come back to him in a later chapter because it's going to talk more about him with, 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 with more detail. But notice what it says of Jesus in verse 7, in the days of his flesh, his humanity. So here we have a scripture that tells us plainly, not only was he very God, but he was a very man. He offered up prayers and supplications, strong cryings, tears to him that was able to save from death and was heard in that he feared. So here we have testimony that Jesus prayed. You say, why would God need to pray? Because God became a man. In John chapter one, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's he became a man in order to demonstrate for us how we ourselves are supposed to live. That's why verse 8 says, though he were a son, he learned obedience by the things he suffered. That's not to say he was disobedient and then had to learn to be obedient. That is to say he simply acquired the knowledge that we ourselves have to acquire. Because the end of chapter number 3 tells us, Verse 15, that he is a high priest that can be touched by the feeling of our infirmities. So Jesus walked down the path of obedience. That's even in Philippians 2.8. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 
His obedience makes it possible for us, even in our disobedience, to still enjoy the grace of God and the benefits of the, of the mercy and compassions of God. So everything under the Old Testament law that had continually been broken from the time it was given until Christ came was then tied to the cross when he died. And the scripture says he fulfilled every jot, every tittle of the Old Testament law. Folks, he kept the laws that we couldn't keep. He kept the laws we didn't even know existed. And I've told you before, there are over 600 laws in the Old Testament. I don't know them all by heart. Somebody probably does. But if somebody said to me, Daryl, what's the 447th law in the Old Testament? I have no idea. Don't need to know. I do know this. Scripture says that all of the law hangs on these two things. Love your neighbor as yourself and love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. There it is right there. You do those two things, you're going to be fine with the Lord. So verse 9 then says, and being made perfect. That's not to say he was flawed. That's very simply to say that his, his ministry had been finished, had been completed. How, how do I know that? Because look at verse uh, 14. See, he, as a great high priest, he passed into the heavens. Also look at chapter 2, verse number 10. For it became him for whom all, all, are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. He endured and he passed through difficulties in order to become the head. Because he's going to heaven. That's what's going to take place. He's going to occupy first place in everything. And the scripture says he's the author of salvation to all them that obey him. So he's not the author of salvation to people that disobey him. The people that disobey him don't believe in him. So if people don't believe in him, how can he be the author of their salvation? They can't be, and I ain't saved. But we that love the Lord and believe what the scripture says, we know that he's the author of our salvation and he's the author of the plan of salvation. But we've told you so many times before, salvation is sufficient. Jesus' death is sufficient for everyone. But it's effective and efficient only for those that believe person refuses to believe what can you do about it and we'll get into that in more detail in chapter six because in chapter six we've got to wrestle with that question can i become a christian can i fall away and that that, that always comes up that always comes up in hebrews chapter six so verse 10 of hebrews 5 called of god a high priest after the order of melchizedek so everything between verse six coming to verse 10 was to amplify or clarify this whole thing about Melchizedek, a king and a priest and a righteous man who gave communion and who served tithe, who accepted tithes of, of Abraham. And the difference between Melchizedek and Jesus is that Jesus was the son. So he's a king and a priest, but he's also a son. Now look at verse 11. He said, of whom we have many things to say, but... He says these folks are hard of hearing and they, they won't receive it right now. You ever met people like that? Dull of hearing? You just, it's like you're wasting your words. Jesus says it this way, casting pearls before a swine. Yeah, sometimes you, you can't waste your time talking to some people. You offer your advice, you offer 
your two cents. You try to take the time to explain something to someone. But just because it's coming from you, they don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's coming from somebody else, oh, you better believe they'd sit there for an extra hour and a half and listen to what's being said. But because it's you, I said, no, we, we, we can't listen. And, and this is what this is talking about. And he says, because of that, th- there was a time when you, you, you ought to be teachers, but right now you have need that someone teaches you again the first principles of the oracles of God. What are the first principles? A, B, C, D, E, all the way, all the way through. The first principles are the basic steps, the, the rudimentary things of the kingdom of God. <clears throat> now, now, teachers ought to know better. Yeah, and if, if you were in high school or you went to a college class and sat down and you had a teacher in front of you, and the teacher is supposed to be teaching algebra trig or calculus, something like that. And if you got into the class and the teacher said something like, a terrible thing has happened to me. Uh, I, I can't even remember how to do these formulas and equations. Wouldn't that be a problem? Yeah, that, that, that'd be a problem. And, or if you had a teacher who just came right out and said, I never even learned how to do this. I don't know why they put me in charge of class. That'd be tough. Yeah. So he says in verse 12, rather than being in a position of an instructor. Someone should just take you through the basics of this. Now, the basics are important. The foundation is absolutely essential to the building of any kind of structure, because if the foundation is lopsided, I don't care how you put how you put that wood up there and frame that house. I'm telling those corners are going to be off. Yeah. And it's going to be a problem. somebody's got to come along and put the bubble where it's supposed to be, right between the lines, all across the foundation. And if the bubble isn't where it's supposed to be, it's going to be a problem later on. So if it's a problem down here in the foundation, then it's going to be a problem up here in the framing. What do you think the roof's going to be like? Yeah, it's going to be a problem all the way around. So if the teacher then doesn't have the foundation inside of him or her and then tries to lay a new foundation in you and try to build a superstructure on top of the foundation he or she has, which is wrong, then of course the whole thing is utter confusion. This, this is what happens. So if, the, if people who are instructing people in the kingdom of God lose sight of the first principles, how, how can we ever get to the deeper things of God? Now, think of it this way. Most people know that in the 21st century, not all, but most of our extremely large mainline denominations have changed some of the things they believe. In fact, to be quite honest with you, in the last 30 years, we probably, we probably have had more new denominations and church groups arise than probably in the last 100 years. Yeah. And until I was in Fort Lauderdale and was down at that Presbyterian school, I thought there probably were only maybe four different Presbyterian denominations. I discovered down there there were more than 60. And most of them sprung up since the early 90s. One gentleman that I had a class with was a, was a Lutheran pastor. I thought for sure there couldn't be more than three. Wisconsin, Missouri, and then 
the, the one or the other ELCA. And, and, and listening to this guy, then I found out that probably he named about another ten. I said, "Wow." But I, I keep coming back to this question, though. <clears throat> what is it that that causes a group to start off one way? And then through the processes of time change. So we go back to the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther and all of them believed that the first principles had been lost. So they had these little basic concepts that they used to teach people. Soli fide, you know. By faith alone and all of that. Glory to God alone. Scripture alone and all of these different things. And they understood if you taught those basic principles to people, it'd be very difficult to deviate from truth. But pretty soon, a generation arose that said, well, why do we need to just focus specifically on those principles? We can talk about some other things. So people did. So after that generation, another generation comes along and says, look, what's the point of just talking specifically about these principles from that generation? After all, this is a new generation. We need to have a different message for, for this generation to reach the people of our times. And so pretty soon they kept doing that. And so here we come into the 21st century and there's been a constant modification of what we're saying to reach different people until the point we don't even remember what the first principles were anymore. I have an idea what they are. Jesus was... Born of a virgin, that's true. Jesus lived without sin, that's true. He suffered for our sins, died, was buried, resurrected, ascended to the Father. One day he's coming back and he's going to judge everybody. The, the, those are the first principles to me. That, but there are a whole lot of people say, look, look, we all believe, believe that. We know that. But why, why do we need to talk about that today? Because those first principles very often are what we know people don't believe. And if you talk to them long enough, you'll find out they don't believe it at all. So the scripture brings us right back to verse 12, the last part. The first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. When I was an infant, I had milk. I didn't, my, when, I, when I was a little kid, they, my mom didn't put a pork chop in front of me when I was about three days old. And, and some parents, they were kind enough for some of their kids just to help them as they were getting along a little bit. They'd even chew their food up for them, give it to them. Yeah. Well, there's a difference between milk and meat. Even in the animal kingdom, the, the mama knows to give the the baby animal milk until a certain time, and then, okay, look, we're, we're, we're done with the milk now. You've got to learn to get out of here and chase one of these critters out here and, and, and devour it, you know. But most toddlers and infants don't have the power of discrimination and discernment. That's why when they're outside or running around the house, they're picking up everything and give it a few moments, it's in their mouth. And they're chewing on it, just slobbering all. It's just all over the place. Get that out of your mouth because the kid doesn't know what they're doing is wrong. It's not in them. Well, this is what happens in the, in the kingdom of God. Babes do not know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. And the only way they can learn it, they got to grow in grace and in knowledge. And the growth only comes as we fill our minds with the word of God. That's the only way it can come. 
But do you know it's also possible for a person to be a Christian, be a Christian a long time, and then somehow be affected a certain way in their mind and go from being mature and revert back to being like a babe. And we see the same thing happen with our elderly sometimes in these generations where uh, people get older and then sometimes if people don't or aren't able to maintain their thoughts, then sometimes the kids have to start taking care of them all over again. Yeah, sometimes that happens. So there are a lot of different ways this can be manifest. Look, our, our apartment is big enough for any of you folks to move in if we need to take care of you. I'll give you my word on that. I'm not changing Steve's diaper at all, no matter what anybody says. Okay, verse 13. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Now, now we need to be able to differentiate between what is milk and what is meat. If you're listening to someone teach the Bible, listen to someone teach scripture, there are ways to determine what you're dealing with. Yeah, I'll give you, give you some clues. If, if a minister takes a text and says, I'm going to preach from this particular text, and then reads the text, and that's the last time you ever hear that text mentioned at all in that message, then... It's a, it's a good chance that they're not teaching what this is in context. I've sat through services like that with Tiffany before, and, 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 uh, and somebody's read a scripture and, and never, ever came back to it again. And we just kind of look at each other and said, do you think he's going to get around to talking about this at all? It's important. It really is. If there's going to be growth, then it has to be the teaching of the word of God, because the scripture says the word of God is alive. It's powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. The scripture says that the, that the word of God brings life. See? The word of God is medicine. All of these different things. The word of God affects us and ministers to us in the different experiences of our lives. And if we teach the word of God the same way that someone would use a skill saw who knows what he or she is doing, then it's still effective in people's lives. There are some people... You do not want to come and do carpentry work at your home. I'm telling you. Yeah. And if, if you see them showing up with a tool belt, you better ask them why they're here. You, you, don't, you don't want them doing anything. There are some people you do not want to get on your roof to shingle it. Especially if your roof is going to be the first one they've ever done. And you're wanting it to last for 20 years or so. Well, anybody can learn, of course. It's, it's like, you know how they say with, with doctors, they're practicing medicine. That's fine. I just don't want to be the one they practice on. I prefer someone who kind of knows what they're doing. When I had my, my blood clot and was in the hospital, I had someone who had just finished up his internship. And I can tell you there's a difference between that one and the difference between the one that I had that knew exactly what he was doing. Because the one that didn't know was not assertive, had no confidence, couldn't make a decision that he could stand by. The nurses knew more than this particular doctor. But when we got with this other gentleman, he said, this is what we're going to do. This is what's going to happen. That's exactly how it occurred. There's a difference. Yeah, there's a difference. So the scripture says that the, the usage of all of this has to do with the skill 
level of the person who is uh, handling it. Verse 14, strong meat belongs to them that are of full age. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So strong meat, you have to teach people where they are in their Christian life. That is what makes uh, teaching as a pastor or any kind of a, a teacher in any situation so difficult because you, you have to be able to teach everybody who are at different levels so that everybody can receive something and, and, and grow in God's word and still not feel like, okay, this is so childish and this is so elementary. I mean, it's not as easy as it seems. But the scripture here then says, strong meats for those that are full age, those that are mature. I like a good steak, porterhouse. I don't mind eating a big Windsor chop. In any, anything that's got some, some meat on it, I, I enjoy that. But I can eat it a whole lot better than I could when I was nine years old. Yeah. And when I was nine years old, we, we did have steak in the house. And when my mom did make it, I'd do my best to try to, I mean, she had to tell me, boy, you can't eat that, that bone on that T-bone. You, you can't eat that. But I, I'd try to eat every bit that I could, but never could finish it as a little kid. But I could finish it now. Yeah. In fact, I, I've thought plenty of times about going into these restaurants, you know, where they have these these contests to see who could finish all, all of that. And then you have the the uh, the board over here with all of the pictures of people that tried but couldn't do it. And then you got the little smaller board over here with like 10 photos of the people that did it. I, I, I've, I've wished that I could just travel across America and just give it a shot. You know, yeah, just just give it a shot. Oh, my. If they change the rule to something like if you at least tried and ate three quarters of it, you could still get it for free. I'd do it. Yeah, I'd do it. But it says here also reason of use of their senses. So these things have to be put into use. Uh, if you the, the more you exercise your muscles, the stronger they get, the more you exercise your, your vision stronger those eyes get, especially if you've had blinders on for a long time, suddenly they take the eye patch off, you start focusing in, using that eye, the stronger it gets. It's the same thing as a, as a believer. If, if you learn to listen to what people are saying when they're teaching, pay attention to what's going on as they're reading the scripture and going through it. If you make full use of your senses, then I give you my word, God will cause you to grow and you'll see things and hear things you never thought of before. Uh, be careful of anybody that tells you when you come to the house of God, just, you know, just leave your senses at the door and just take everything that we say to be God's word, because that's not always true. God, God did give us a mind and he gave us a heart and, and he wants you to listen to what people are saying. The scripture here says to discern both good and evil. So this is a good time of the, the year to learn these things. When you flip that television on, all these politicians are telling you what it means to be religious. This is always that time of the year when they're running. They want to tell you what it means to be a Christian, and my Christian faith means this to me, and this is what I believe, and this is what you ought to believe. Just listen to what they're saying. You, you, you find out very clearly that some of them don't even know what they believe. I, I heard one 
those politicians being interviewed, they, they asked this politician, what is your favorite verse of the Bible? Oh, I just thought that was so cute. What's your favorite verse of the Bible? So the, the politician started thinking about it, and, uh, and uh, the best he could come up with was, you know, that, that one we all like, God helps those that help themselves. I guess nobody ever told him that wasn't in the Bible, but he—he—it he, was in his his Bible. See, it was—it was in his version. So, as a as a Christian, study the Word and follow follow people to hear what they're saying and to see where they're going, folks. God's got to teach us a whole lot of things in the rest of the time that we have. One day Jesus is going to come. This is certainly the last days. I'm ready for Him to come tonight. I am. I'd like to see him this evening. With so much that's going on, it'd be so nice to look upon his face and hear him say, well done, you good and faithful servant. Anybody could stay down there and teach the gospel as you've done down there in Hebron. Come on in here. Come on in here, please. This son, get on in here. You need an embrace right now. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. We are so happy we can get into the word of God on a Tuesday evening and hear what the scripture is saying. Father, help us all to be mature saints, to grow. Help us not to be immature, but to live beyond our feelings, but to live according to what your truth is. These things we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen, 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 amen.